The following message is from Ridgewood Church in Greer, South Carolina. For more information, visit RidgewoodGreer.com. Now, as I've mentioned, we have been studying through the book of Acts. The book of Acts begins with Jesus commissioning his disciples to go make Jesus known, beginning in Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, ultimately to the ends of the earth. And early on within the book of Acts, as soon as Jesus essentially, I mean, basically day one, as soon as he commissions his disciples out, opposition begins to sort of ramp up against the advance of the gospel. Opposition that comes from both Jews and Gentiles. But early on in Acts, we meet this guy called Saul. And he's like the chief persecutor of the church. Until, in chapter 9, he's interrupted by the grace of the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. He goes from this ferocious, aggressive persecutor of churches to this ferocious, aggressive planter of churches, preaching the gospel everywhere he goes. He becomes a missionary. And we're given these three journeys that, that, that depict Paul traveling all over the known world at that time, preaching the good news of Jesus to Jews and Gentiles alike. And Paul talks about how, you know, how essential it is that both Jew and Gentile understand that they are one people, one people in Christ. And just like Jesus promised, the gospel beginning in chapter 1 has expanded outward. Part 1, we observed how the gospel went and, and took root in the city of Jerusalem in chapters 1 through 8. In chapters 9 through 12, in the second part of Acts, we saw how it does indeed advance to Judea and Samaria. And then in part 3, chapters 13 through 20, we saw how it advanced to the ends of the earth. Now, we're in part four, where Paul is ultimately bound for Rome. And by the way, this is a title that we stole. I'm not this creative. I thought it was, I thought it was a really kind of snippy and clever way to capture what's taking place in the last part of the book. We see Paul is ultimately making his way to Rome, the heart of the world's greatest empire. But we find Paul in this passage on the way back to the city of Jerusalem. And if you've been tracking as we've been studying Acts, this is an important move for two reasons. The first reason... Paul wants to get back in time for Pentecost, which is a celebration of harvest, because he's bringing these brothers and sisters who have been harvested from the nation. He wants to bring them back to the church at Jerusalem and, see, and say, see, Jesus is right. I mean, he's done what he said he would do. He is gathering people in from every tribe, tongue, and nation. But secondly, the Christians in Jerusalem are suffering from a drought which has led to a food shortage. And Paul sees this as a strategic opportunity. He can gather up money from the saints in Macedonia, in Europe, and in Asia, and he could bring it back to the Christians, the believing Jews in Jerusalem, as a statement of their unity and their commonality in Jesus. He, he's, he's coming back, he's kind of, kind of bringing a peace offering, saying like, look, we all belong to Christ together. Your suffering is our suffering. Your suffering is their suffering. We are one in Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, Paul writes, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. This is kind of a region of Europe. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. The relief of the saints in the city of Jerusalem. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Paul is saying, like, look at the example of the saints in Macedonia and how they were moved by God's grace to them to give to the saints in Jerusalem. Paul is writing this letter as he's going about this fundraising campaign uh, on this kind of final leg of the journey, making his way back to Jerusalem. 
Paul also mentions in Romans 15 and 1 Corinthians 16 this same relief effort for the saints in Jerusalem. And he's praying that that this relief, this, this money will be received and that it will be received as a sign of their solidarity in Jesus. Jew and Gentile belonging to one Lord, Jesus. Because Paul knows trouble awaits him in Jerusalem. Paul is preparing to step into a buzzsaw. Have you ever unknowingly walked into trouble? Unknowingly, you walked into a hornet's nest. Have you ever had that experience? My family this week, um, we we spent some time at Lake Hartwell. This is something that we do um, every other summer. We go spend some time with Emily's family down at the lake. It's become a favorite tradition. Uh, if, If you are like, I mean, hopefully you can relate to this, but it's like we eat, we swim, we eat, we, play, we do puzzles, we eat, we do board games, we eat, and then we eat, and then we eat, right? Well, you know how that goes. Well, on our final day, just before we're, we're you know, scheduled to go home the next morning, it decides to just absolutely pour on us this past Thursday. It is just an absolute, you know, monsoon. And so lake activities are just off the table. So we kind of sit around and twiddle our thumbs inside. We go see a movie, and we're just like, we got to get these kids out of the house. And so we decide that night that we're going to go to Smokin' Pig, which is a barbecue restaurant in Pendleton. Anybody ever been to Smokin' Pig? Can I that way? Boy. Y'all know how I feel about food. And this is legit. I mean, excellent, excellent brisket and ribs and pulled pork and fried okra and this loaded potato casserole. And they got the banana pudding, and they got all of it. It's just absolutely incredible. However... It's located in Pendleton. And you know what Pendleton is close to, right? Clemson. Ugh. All right, and, and if you know anything about me, you know how I feel about Clemson. It's, it hurts me to even say that word in such a sacred space, right? And we should have known. I mean, we're going to Smoke and Pig in Pendleton. We should have known what awaited us. I mean, as soon as we roll up, there's Clemson stuff everywhere. It's like they got a Clemson Paul on the window. They got the girls who are working the cashier station. They got the Smoking Pig logo on their shirt, and it's Clemson colors. We should have known we were going to like the heart of Clemson territory. There are these two giant Clemson wooden helmet things that are kind of at the front of the restaurant. It's just disturbing. <laughs> and then, you know, you got the decor, you got the pictures, you got the staff shirts, you got all that. The patrons are all in Clemson gear. Then there's a, a big room that's kind of located at the back of the restaurant for larger parties. We go back there, and you know who's back there? Brad Brownell and the entire Clemson basketball program is just hanging out at the back of Smoking Pig in Pendleton. And here's the best part. Again, you, you know how I feel about Clemson. Here's the best part. I'm going to show you a picture. This is what my family was wearing that night. <laughs> So not it, it, my wife was wearing a South Carolina logo. My infant son was wearing a South Carolina logo. I, I'm pretty sure I was the only one who wasn't wearing Carolina gear. And, and, and Jude, my oldest son, was wearing a beat Clemson shirt as we walk into Smoking Pig in Pendleton. It would have been a lot less bearable had we not beaten Clemson in football, basketball, and baseball this year. Since that was the case, you know, we felt pretty good about walking into that space. And thankfully, we made it out alive. We did not wander into our doom like I was nervous that we were about to. Have you ever walked into trouble unknowingly? A hornet's nest that you didn't expect. Let me ask you this. Have you ever walked into trouble knowingly? A hornet's nest that you knew you had to embrace, that you knew you had to walk into. Maybe it was a hard conversation with a family member. It was a confrontation with a spouse or a confrontation with someone in your church or it was bad news, 
right, that you knew that you were going to go receive, you knew that you had to walk into that trouble. Well, there, there's a certain kind of heroism that that requires, right? What we see in this passage is that Paul is headed to the city of Jerusalem, and he is headed to trouble, and he knows it. Let's look again at Acts 21, starting in verse 1. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came, uh, came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and then from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come inside of Cyprus, leaving on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and we went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. Now we pick up Paul having just left Miletus, where he gave his kind of impassioned final speech to the Ephesian elders. We saw a couple of weeks ago that this was a kind of passing of the baton moment. Paul understands that he is headed likely to his doom. He knows what's coming, and he knows that he needs to entrust the ministry to these churches to these elders. He entrusts these elders to guard the flock. Paul's making his way back to Jerusalem, and ultimately he decides to stay for a week with the disciples at Tyre. He's probably making good time. He wants to be back at, in time for Pentecost. He's making good time. He's got a little bit of extra space to delay, so they delay. Hang with these disciples for a bit. But what happens while they're there? Well, verse 4. We're told that they plead with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Because in verse 4, through the Spirit, they're telling Paul not to go. The Spirit has communicated to these folks something of what awaits Paul in Jerusalem. And so they beg Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. We know what awaits you there. What happens? Verse 5. Paul still goes. You have a parting that's much like chapter 20 of Miletus with the Ephesian elders. It's heartfelt, it's sorrowful, it's prayerful. But Paul goes nonetheless. Kind of brings up a question, right? I mean, verse 4 says that through the Spirit, they're begging Paul not to go. But yet, verse 5, Paul persists. So should Paul be going? Is Paul right in going to Jerusalem? Does he have a martyr complex that he's trying to live out? Keep reading. Verse 7. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, an object lesson, much like the prophets in the Old Testament, he took Paul's belt, bound his own feet and his hands, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit. You don't, you don't get more prophetic than that. The Holy Spirit told me to say this. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. So they go from Tyre to Ptolemaeus and Caesarea. They meet Philip again, who was seen earlier on in the book of Acts, this time with his four daughters. We're given this interesting detail that he has four unmarried daughters who prophesy. If you think back to uh, the events at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, uh, quoting the, the prophet uh, Joel said that when the Spirit comes, our daughters and sons will prophesy. This is Luke sort of demonstrating that that has indeed been the case. And, and this is probably something that was limited to the first century. As we've said, that this, these kinds of miraculous works seem to sort of clump around first initial inbreakings of the gospel. So, you know, this is probably not intended to be normative for us. 
Nevertheless, we're told that these four unmarried daughters who prophesy, whose vocation is service to God, are prophesying, presumably, about the same things. Paul, this is what awaits you. Don't go. Don't go into the hornet's nest, Paul. And then another prophet arrives, Agabus. This is round two with Agabus. We saw him in chapter 11 earlier. This time he uses Paul's belt to depict exactly what's going to happen. In verse 11 he says, Thus says the Spirit, you will be bound and delivered into the hands of the Gentiles. Philip and his daughters and Agabus and everyone. I mean, look at verse 12. Luke, and when we heard this, the narrator speaking, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Paul, this is a supremely bad idea. Don't go to Jerusalem. Verse 13. Paul answered, What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am not ready, uh, excuse me, for I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. They plead with Paul not to go, and Paul responds heroically by saying, no, this is my calling. This is what the Spirit has instructed me to do. And those pleading with him back down, and they say really familiar words here. Let the will of the Lord be done. Hang on to that for just a second. Now, like we already noted, this is a little bit perplexing, because in verse 4, we have from the Spirit through these people, presumably is how it reads, the Spirit is having them tell Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And then verse 11, Agabus does the prophetic thing with the belt. And again, he's saying, this is what's going to happen to you. Don't go to Jerusalem. But in chapter 20, in Paul's speech to the Ephesian elders, he says that he's constrained by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. That's in chapter 20, verse 22. And so we have to ask, like, what, what is taking place here? Is the Spirit giving conflicting messages? Is, is the Spirit kind of telling Agabus and, and the Philip's daughters A, and he's telling Paul B? Is that what's taking place? Is Paul being really stubborn about the Jerusalem thing? I don't know if, if any of you have any of these, like, in my family, we have a lot of these kind of southern, I have my mind made up, don't, you know, change my mind with the facts kind of people. That's I kind of come from a long line of those types, and I might not, or maybe am one of those types. Is, is that sort of what Paul is? Is he just kind of hard-headed about this? What's taking place? Now, probably what's happened is that the Spirit has only revealed some of the picture to these prophets. Yes, this is, await, is what awaits Paul, but the Spirit hasn't told them that he's also told Paul to go anyway. All right, so the prophets, they know some of the picture. The Spirit's given some of the picture to Agabus and others. Paul's going to be imprisoned. And like anybody with any kind of common sense, they conclude, hey, Paul, don't go. We love you. You're valuable to the, to, to the mission of the church. I mean, you've planted numerous churches. I mean, you are a crucial asset to the kingdom advancing and Christ being made known. The church needs you. So the Spirit's told them that this is Paul's destiny. Therefore, Paul, don't go. But it seems like what Paul is saying is that the Spirit has also told him, go anyway. And, and maybe the reason for this sort of partial revelation, this kind of partial unfolding as to what's to take place, is we're in, intended to see this as a kind of Gethsemane moment for the Apostle Paul. If you're familiar with the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's something that happens across all four of them, 
All four of them, they highlight the importance of Jesus' death. There's this moment where Jesus pulls his disciples aside and says, Look, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. And almost inevitably, how do the disciples respond to that news? You can't do that, Jesus. Don't go. That's not the way this thing is supposed to work out. Do not go to Jerusalem, Jesus. Do not go because we know what you're headed into. We know the buzzsaw that awaits you. It doesn't have to be this way. A famous example comes from Matthew 16. I'll have it on the screen. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter, wise, foot-shaped mouth Peter, takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke Jesus, saying, far be it from you, Lord, that shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. When Jesus tells his disciples repeatedly that this is my destiny, this is my calling, it's always met with a, you can't do that, Jesus. You can't do that, Jesus. That's not the way it's supposed to be, Jesus. And on the night that Jesus is betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, I mean, he is staring down the barrel of his suffering and death, sweating drops of blood, asking the Father, is there any other way? Is the cross my calling? Is death what you have for me? The Lord Jesus heroically declares, not my will, but your will be done, Heavenly Father. And so what I think Luke is wanting us to see is that there's a kind of similar dynamic taking place in the life of Paul right now. Paul is saying that this is my calling. This this is what I have to do. I've got to go to the city of Jerusalem. And those who love Paul, who don't have the full picture... They say, it can't be this way. It can't. But Paul says it must. It's what I've been called to do. Like our Savior, the Lord Jesus, I'm embracing Jerusalem and certain death. And like the Lord Jesus says in the garden, Paul and these saints conclude, not my will, but the Lord's will be done. Verse 17. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he, re- he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Paul's like, you're not going to believe this, but I was in Athens, and I saw the statue to the unknown God, and I started to preach about the unknown God. And you, it would blow your mind, but these people started to believe in the Jewish Messiah. They believed the preaching of Christ. People believed, even those pagans from Athens. He tells about how he was in in Lystra, in Derby, and he tells about all of these sort of adventures that we've seen Paul undertake over the last couple of chapters. Verse 20, when they heard it, they glorified God. The brothers were thankful to hear it. They said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you will teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. So, so James is expressing a concern. James is he's, he's excited to hear about the inclusion of the Gentiles into the, the Jesus movement. He's, he's celebrating that thousands have believed, thousands of Jews have believed on Jesus. But James is saying we, ha- we have a little bit of a problem because rumors are circulating that you're going to start telling people to abandon their Jewishness in order to follow Jesus. If you're familiar with books like Galatians, Paul talks about the Judaizers. These were folks who come from a Jewish background who said that you have to embrace circumcision in order to be a Christian. Paul shoots that down. What we have here is sort of the opposite concern. There's concern from James and the saints in Jerusalem that there are Gentilizers, we might say. That's one commentator's 
sort of take on it. There are these folks who are Gentiles who say, in order to be a Christian, you have to abandon your Jewishness. And James is saying, that, you know, everybody's kind of excited, and everybody's, you know, you know this, is, this is a good thing, but we're a little bit nervous about what this is going to mean for Jew and Gentile relations. We're specifically nervous that you're going to come in here, guns ablaze, willy-nilly about the law of Moses and our customs, and it's not, it's not going to go over super well. So what can be done about this? Verse 22. Verse 23, rather. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you. The rumors are false. But that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and blood, what has been strangled and sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. In response to this concern about the Gentilizers sort of, sort of crowding out those Jewish Christians, they say, Paul, why don't you, why don't you sort of offer a symbol of your willingness to play by Jewish customs as a sign that you are indeed not being willy-nilly about the law. Paul happily embraces it. Again, we've seen Paul kind of make this move before a few times throughout the book of Acts. We think back earlier in the story when he circumcised Timothy. There was a willingness to to play ball with these customs in order to prevent things like disunity or, or obstacles to the further advance of the gospel. Verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing Paul in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. Now, these are not the believing Jews that Paul's been interacting with up to this point. These are unbelieving Jews. They cry out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then, they all, then the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and at what? Once the gates were shut. So Paul is singled out by the crowds. There's false accusations made against Paul. They take him out of the city. And again, this is starting to sound a little bit familiar. Verse 31. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. So kind of the news of this riot gets to the Roman leaders. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried out by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. All in confusion, they bind Paul, just as Agabus said they would. They arrest Paul. They mob against Paul with false accusations of Paul, and they, and they shout away with this guy. And once again, our minds return to the story of Jesus. Luke wants us to see parallels with the final days of Jesus' life before his death and crucifixion, resurrection, and what's taking place here with Paul. Now, this is where we're going to land the plane. What happens next? Come back next week, and we'll talk more about what happens. Or you can just read the rest of Acts this afternoon, but it's a better cliffhanger for me to say, come back next week. Now, this is not the first time that we actually see in the book of Acts a parallel drawn between Jesus' people and Jesus. 
a parallel between the apostles and the church doing things and saying things and living things that are strikingly reminiscent of Jesus' life. We think way back to Acts chapter 9. We have the story of Peter being beckoned to come care for a sick girl. Peter agrees to help her. He arrives to mourners. He sends everyone out, and he takes her up, restored to life by the hand. This is a story that very much replays the events of something Jesus did in Jesus' ministry. One of the things that we've said sort of over and over again throughout Acts is that Luke is kind of picturing the church as those who have taken up the mantle of the ministry of Jesus, that Jesus' ministry continues in us, his people. You think back to the introduction of Acts. He says, Luke, the, the first book I wrote is about all of the stuff that Jesus began to do, with the implication being Acts is about all of the stuff that Jesus is continuing to do, this time through his body. Jesus so identifies with his people, and Jesus works through his people, and Jesus' spirit animates his people to continue the ministry of Jesus. But that's not the only way we're to relive or live out the story of Jesus. We're also called, like Paul, to embrace Jerusalem. Moments ago, I read from Matthew 16 about this time Jesus predicted his death. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples he must go to Jerusalem, suffer, and be killed. What does Jesus tell his disciples immediately after that? Matthew 16, verse 24. Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What Jesus tells us and what Luke is showing us is that to be a Christian is to be a cross bearer. It's to go to Jerusalem knowing fully well what's going to happen to you there. Like Jesus, like Paul. To be a Christian is to be a cross bearer. I mean, Paul is living this out, like literally following Jesus. I mean, he's literally, you know, Jesus says, whoever comes after me, Paul is like literally coming after Christ. And you know what, Christian? The same thing is true for us. To be a Christian is to be a crossbearer. I mean, really, I mean, think about this with me for just a second. The call to follow Jesus is to follow Jesus. It is to walk the path after him, to walk in his footsteps, to, to do the to do and in many ways, of course, Christ is foundational and he's unique and his death is once for all. And Jesus was uh, walking on water and, and healing and raising people from the dead. I'm fairly confident that that's not going to be true of us. But you understand, the call is for us to walk in Jesus' footsteps, to, to live out Jesus' ministry, and it's also to embrace the same cross. The call to follow Jesus is to follow him, like Paul, to embrace a cross and die. And for Paul, it is an honor to suffer like his Lord. What does he say to them? I am ready to go to Jerusalem and even die for the name of the Lord Jesus. And have we really come to grips with the fact that that is our calling? From the lips of Jesus, I mean, the the most basic, fundamental, what it means to be a Christian is to embrace a cross like Christ. Something I think often about is how easy it is to be a Christian here in the States. And, and there's, a, there's a way to say that that intends to make you feel bad about that. We should thank the Lord for his grace to us. 
I remember um, uh, our brother, uh, brother A, who is in Southeast India, I remember the first time, one of the first times he visited, and he was recounting some of their struggles and some of their suffering. And I asked him, I said, are we just like pathetic compared with you guys? Like when you come and see American Christians, are you just filled with contempt? And he was like, no, brother, not in a million years. Like we, we, we love the freedoms and the, the, the relative ease that you have. And follow, we, it's a good thing, and we should thank God for that good thing, and we should pray that that would be sustained. But as we read passages like this, I mean, we can forget the reality of what it is Christ has called his saints to over the years. We don't know what it's like to be stoned or have our homes plundered or to be ostracized from our families. But for many, many, many Christians in the history of our faith, that has very much been the case. To follow Jesus means to embrace a Jerusalem of sorts. To be a Christian is to be a cross-bearer. A.W. Tozer unpacks that for us with this quote from a book called The Radical Cross. He says, The cross is the suffering the Christian endures as a consequence of his following Christ and perfect obedience. Christ chose the cross by choosing the path that led to it, and so it is with his followers. In the way of obedience stands the cross, and we take the cross when we enter that way. The call to follow Jesus is to embrace a cross. Maybe that's dying for Jesus. Literally. Maybe for us that's very unlikely, but maybe that is the call for some of us. Maybe it's dying for Jesus, literally dying a death for him. I don't know that for certain, but what I do know for certain is that it does mean a dying to self moment by moment by moment by moment. It means looking at a life that you didn't ask for, but a life that you were given and receiving it from the Lord with the same sort of readiness that Paul stepped into the city of Jerusalem by saying, not my will, but yours be done. Maybe it looks like the Lord giving you suffering and hardships you did not ask for, but it's receiving it, saying, not my will, but yours. It is certainly crucifying your desires in obedience to the Lord Jesus. And, and this is one of those sort of points where the Christian faith is so countercultural. This piece is so counter to our world because we're told that we're to be true to those truest parts of ourselves. You know, dig deep and kind of find who you truly are and then go live that out for all of the world to see and affirm. It's like, yeah, maybe. Or you dig deep to find those places that you need to go kill. You need to go die to those parts of yourself. And it's going to feel like death. It's going to feel like cutting off from life. It's going to feel like you are being robbed of something. But that's the way of Jesus. Not my will, but yours be done, Lord Jesus. To be a Christian is to be a cross-bearer. It is to walk headlong into Jerusalem, to take the way of the cross, and to do so with resolve and joy. And as I think about Paul's example and the innumerable examples of saints who have walked this path before, I wonder, like, what on earth could motivate us to do such a thing? What on earth could motivate Paul to do such a thing? And I think the answer is because Paul has clarity on what Jesus has done for him. You read through the letters of Paul, and it's these sweeping sort of adventures through the, the, the narrative of Scripture and what God has accomplished for his people. And Paul says things like Romans chapter 8, verse 1, that we read a moment ago, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, and that there is no thing or no place that can separate us from the love of Christ. Because Jesus bore judgment for us, and he took our names to the cross, and he died for our sin so that he could fill us with his joy and his life and his spirit and welcome us into eternity with the Father forever. And it's done so not on the basis of all of the good stuff we can do or the, the moral threshold that we can cross, 
It is given to us on the basis of belief, of looking up at him and saying, yes, I receive it. It's to learn the joy of obedience and dependence on Jesus because we know who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And we know that the call to die is not the punctuation mark at the end of this sentence. Death is not the end for God's people because just like Jesus who entered a cross and walked out of a tomb in a forever permanent bulletproof life, that is our future as well, friends. I came across this quote a couple weeks ago and it's just unbelievable. Thomas Watson, he's a Puritan, said this, we are more sure to arise out of our graves than out of our beds. And if that's true, what is Jerusalem to that? We'll happily embrace a cross for Jesus' namesake, because that's our destiny. It's a springboard into further up and further in forever and ever and ever and ever. Because of what Jesus has done for us. But you know what's even better than that? It's because of who Jesus is towards us. Paul says it's an honor to offer my life to Jesus because have you seen him? Have you talked with him? Have you heard about who he is? I will happily embrace a cross and go to Jerusalem for that guy. There's a legendary story about an early Christian, a guy named Polycarp. In the early years of the the church, when the church was initially opposed by Rome for their atheism, the church would refuse to say that Caesar is Lord in favor of the statement that Christ is Lord. According to the legend, a proconsul, a Roman leader, demanded of Polycarp that he reproach Christ and he would be set free. Polycarp was being led to his death, said, if you reproach Christ, we will set you free. And this is so good. Polycarp responds by saying this. He's an old man. 86 years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? How can I turn my back on Jesus? Do you know who that guy is? Do you know what he's done? You know, I wonder this morning, what specific thing it is that you are being called into right now? What hard thing has the Spirit put his finger on in your heart? Maybe the Spirit's used the voice of brothers and sisters in community or the Lord's used his word to shun the light on something. I mean, what is the thing that you are thinking of now, the place that you just need to go? The Jerusalem you need to walk into, we might say, and the cross that you need to embrace. What is it for you? The invitation, I think, this morning is for you to walk into exactly that and say, I've been doing my thing long enough. It's been my will long enough. Not my will, but yours be done in this particular circumstance. I mean, it really, it boils down to us in, in every moment to one simple question. My will or the Lord's will in this? Is this what I want to do or what the Lord would have me to do? We have two choices in every moment, in every circumstance to receive what God would have us to do, to embrace the cross, or to do the thing that we want to do. And I bet it feels scary, and I know it feels big, and I know it's daunting, and I know it's going to feel like a kind of death. But listen, Jesus promises resurrection to those who die. That's where life is. Jesus promises. So Christian, this is your invitation this morning to follow Jesus, to follow, literally follow Jesus, to take up your cross, to follow him, to embrace Jerusalem, if you catch my meaning, even if that means death for you. And if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, honestly, the invitation isn't a whole lot different. It's for you to surrender doing your thing and to embrace Jesus's thing. 
to receive him as a good and gracious God and Savior and to begin patterning your life after him by his grace. I've only got 20 years of following Jesus, but I feel like I can start to sort of echo Polycarp on this. I promise you, I promise you, the way of Christ is worth it. Could you join him? Next few moments, as we always do, we're going to take some time to just pray and reflect. I would just encourage you to ask the Holy Spirit to work in your life and to sort of shine his light on where where he would have you to respond to the things that have been said this morning. If you have any questions about anything, uh, I'm going to be out in the lobby uh, this morning after the service is over. You can also ask whoever you came with this morning, or you can... uh, Uh, we can set up a coffee, whatever it is, we can talk a little bit more about what it means to follow Christ. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, in many ways, I feel like I'm talking about things that are too glorious for words. And that I am... I am too inadequate to convey and I am too sinful to speak to. Lord Jesus, we pray that your spirit would move in us and that you would give us clarity on how you would have us to respond. We pray that you would help us to see that you are glorious and good and worth our lives. And may half-hearted faithfulness, half-hearted obedience to you never have a home at Ridgewood. Lord Jesus, we love you. We trust that these things that we have prayed go with the grain of exactly what it is you want to do in us. And we pray that you would move in us today, this week. In your name, amen.